Welcome, I'm Doug Morgan, and you're listening to Uncommon Sense, where we hunt for the truth in the topics you're not supposed to talk about, Christianity and politics. Welcome back to part two of our podcast on Christianity Today's Top 10 Articles for Pastors in 2021. Monday, we went through Articles 6 through 10, and this included articles that covered how pastors should deal with hurting people in their churches to churches being torn apart by denominations, seeking more people in their services by going woke. From pastors being burned out to what we can learn from the Atlanta church shooting. Well, today we will finish the list and see what we can learn from it. Remember, Christianity Today is not the same organization that Billy Graham started back in 1956. It just isn't. Uh, It is a propaganda wing of the progressive church, really. And this doesn't mean that we can't learn from it. It means that we need to understand and identify the narratives being pushed by the publication. We can still learn many truths from it. And that's why it is interesting to see what they have found the most popular articles of the past year for pastors are. And coming in at number five is an article by John W. Yates. It was published back on April 26th, and it was entitled, John Stott would want us to stop, study, and struggle. (laughs) As his uh, study assistant, he starts out, says, I saw how the steadfast suffering of careful thinking resulted in balanced biblical Christianity. John had spent the day working through revisions for a new edition of his well-known book, Issues Facing Christians Today. Apart from a short break for lunch and his regular afternoon nap, he had been at his desk since 5.30 in the morning. And after a 15-minute tea break, he would turn to his desk until 7 p.m. No wonder he was weary. Now, over tea, he discussed the progress he had made that day and state of my research on the chapter that he would tackle the following day. He also indulged in shortbread cookies, (laughs) which were known to be an effective treatment for PIM. As he rose and and go return to his work, he patted down the white tufts of his hair that had been disturbed and said, J.Y., there are certain tasks which cannot be done without acute Pain in the mind, or P-I-M, right? (laughs) They are rarely fun, but always worthwhile. I thought that was really, uh, some really wise words there. And as we celebrate the centenary of John's birth this week, I have been thinking about pain in the mind. (laughs) John was an undeniably brilliant communicator, known for the clarity and conciseness of his thought, but his natural gifts did not relieve him of the struggle of careful study and the strain required for understanding God's word and applying it to the modern world. Another favorite acronym 
of John's was BBC. He, he took delight in explaining that this did not stand for the British Broadcast Corporation, <laughs> but rather for balanced biblical Christianity. John was not afraid of tackling an unpopular stance if script, scripture required it, but he never rushed into an opinion. In his quest for a balanced and biblical Christianity, he worked tirelessly to understand every perspective on a topic before coming to a carefully considered judgment rooted in Scripture. (laughs) How novel an idea, right? During this long season of isolation and separation caused by the pandemic, I have often thought of John Stott's, his Uh, capacity for personal relationships and his his, his commitment to all kinds of people regardless of social, cultural, or racial barriers. By virtue of his generosity and steadfastness in friendships, he created a thick community around him of astonishingly different people rooted in the grace of Christ. It's a marvelous image of what the church can be for a world plagued by division and indifference. Definitely a person uh, I would have liked to have have known at some point um, and and really has had some very wise words uh, in his time. Number four, coming in at number four article, uh, it came out on September 20th entitled Gary Chapman doesn't know he's famous. <laughs> and basically, it's it's about the top-selling authors love language books that have transformed millions of lives. You may have read the books. Uh, you may have, have even taken uh, the tests. Um, but this article was kind of interesting in that uh, it, it talks about Gary Chapman's team had been trying for 10 years to get him uh, on Oprah Winfrey. When they finally got a call back, a producer asked if they would be okay uh, filling an hour-long slot on Oprah's Life Class, uh, a primetime show on her cable network for Valentine's Day weekend of 2013. And on air, um, Winfrey told her audience that she'd noticed Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages, uh, it never seemed to leave the New York Times bestseller list. And when she asked her staff about it, her wardrobe manager spoke out and said that it had transformed her marriage. Quote, it was such a game changer for me. Stylist Kelly Hurlman uh, actually explained on, on the show. And she said, quote, there's such simplicity in its message, but I feel like it's so powerful. That simple message was Chapman's theory that there are five main ways that people feel loved or tend to show love. Uh, Words of affirmation, acts of service, quality time, receiving gifts, and physical touch. Most other forms of love fall into these categories as dialects of the languages, he argues. Now, Chapman became a household name for evangelicals in the mid-1990s after publishing his iconic purple book that helped people discover their primary ways of giving and receiving love. The Five Love Languages sold 8,500 copies its first year. It more than doubled that in the second year. And the fourth year, 
it sold 137,000 copies and it kept going. The, the book will mark its 30th anniversary this year and it's still crushing records. It was the top selling Christian book for much of 2021. Uh, it was sold, it, it, it has sold more than 20 million copies worldwide. Only six other evangelical books have reached the 10 million mark. So even half of that, there's only been six. Moody Publishers, whose Northfield imprint publishes Chapman's book, says that 2.5 million guests have come to the Five Love Languages website every month. That's every month. Many to take the Love Languages evaluation quiz. The article goes on to talk about Gary Chapman and who he uh, is and, and, and who him and his wife uh, are uh, and the struggles that, uh, that they went through in their marriage and, and how the book really came out of that. Uh, kind of a neat article that you might want to take a look at. Uh, coming in at number three, the article number three is an article uh, that uh, came out on August 24th. And it's actually more of an obituary of sorts than it is an article, but it's entitled Thomas McKenzie, Defender and Definer of Anglicanism. Um, Thomas McKenzie, a popular Nashville priest and author of the Anglican Way, died on Monday alongside his 22-year-old child, Charlie McKenzie. They were driving from their home in Tennessee to St. John's College in Santa Fe. That's in New Mexico, where the young McKenzie uh, was set to start uh, his senior year. The car collided with a tractor-trailer near Burns, Tennessee, about 20 minutes west of Nashville, uh, just a little before 10 a.m. McKenzie spent his adult life promoting Anglicanism as the pastor of a church, as uh, an, an opponent to liberal uh, Episcopal theology, and finally as someone who um, articulated the essence of uh, Anglicanism in, in a way that was attractive to many evangelicals. Uh, quote, there are people who call themselves Anglican, who simply aren't Anglican by any respectable definition of that word, he wrote in his 2014 book. Uh, the Anglican Way is, is the book that he wrote. And in it, he said, they remind me of that famous line from the movie, The Princess Bride. They keep using the word Anglican, but it doesn't mean what they think it means. <laughs> Love that movie. Uh, <laughs> uh, he also said the Anglican way it, uh, of, of faith is at best a way of balance. He said that we're only radical about one thing, the redeeming love of God in Christ. Now, after college, McKenzie attended seminary at Trinity Episcopal School of Ministry in Pennsylvania. Trinity was a conservative Episcopal institution founded by uh, charismatics and uh, low church evangelicals and, and liturgical uh, traditionalists joined all together in their opposition to what they saw as heretical liberal revisionist theology. Now, uh, after finishing his Master's of Divinity and becoming a priest, uh, McKenzie was uh, placed as an assistant rector at 
St. Bartholomew's, uh, which is an Episcopal church in Nashville. In 2003, he was one of 14 priests in Middle Tennessee who signed a public statement condemning the General Convention's confirmation of the consecration of an openly gay bishop, Gene Robertson. Um, this was the, the beginning of the largest split of conservative uh, congregations from the Episcopal Church. Quote, certainly the actions of the general uh, convention were schismatic, he said, uh, and fractured our national denomination. He told the Tennessee uh, newspaper that we're hoping to be able to respond in a creative and constructive way to their destructive action. Now, he basically didn't pull any punches when it came to that. Uh, the next year, McKenzie uh, planted a church just four miles from uh, from that church, uh, and it was called Church of the Redeemer. The, the new church was part of the Anglican Mission uh, in America, or AMIA, which rejected the authority of the Episcopal Church and placed itself under the authority of the more conservative and traditionalist Anglican bishops, uh, actually from uh, Rwanda, believe it or not. Uh, and it's, he said, quote, the church only has two things to offer the world, a word and sacrament. He said that these two together are how we proclaim the gospel. The word is the voice of the gospel. The sacraments are the body. The only reason for the church to exist is to proclaim the gospel in word and deed. We've been about this work for 2,000 years, and I don't expect us to stop until Christ's return. And I, I think those, again, are wise words, and I think he's right in that regard. So, all right, coming in at number two, uh, we have an article back from March 16th by David Ayers, and it was entitled, The uh, Cohabilitation uh, Dilemma uh, Comes for America's pastors. And this is this is uh, talking about uh, the fact that more evangelicals are living together before marriage. Uh, church leaders struggle to respond to that. And that is something that all pastors have to kind of know when they get into the ministry. How are they going to handle this uh, cohabilitation type of, uh, of, uh, of thing when somebody wants to get married um, and, but they're living together and, and, and that type of thing. How are you going to handle this type of thing? And it says here, it says in, in early 2019, the internet was aglow with news about Chris Pratt and his fiance, Catherine Schwarzenegger moving in together. Media outlets cited the couple's evangelical Christian faith as the reason they did not co co, uh, ha have it until they were engaged. Few suggested there was any contradiction between Pratt's uh, cohabitation uh, uh, and his status as a devout Christian. A folksy, popular evangelical who uh, urged living boldly in faith is, is how he was described. Uh, this may seem odd to those who recognize the, that scripture forbids all sexual activity outside of marriage, but the choice that Pratt and Schwarzenegger made isn't contained to Hollywood. It's the new norm among young professing evangelicals across America. What I have seen, he says, for years in large national surveys and, 
and learned in, in interviews with uh, a spectrum of pastors in, in 2019 uh, corresponds with these uh, act, antidotes that evangelicals, especially those under 40, increasingly see cohabitation um, as morally acceptable. Most young evangelicals have engaged in it or expect to. Simply put, living together is far more common and accepted than Christians realize. American pastors are grappling with how to navigate wedding policies and premarital counseling among uh, cohabiting congregants. But one thing is certain. If the church is to uh, preserve and protect marriage, something about its approach has to change. Evangelicals are much less likely than Americans overall to approve uh, cohabitation. Still, a Pew Research survey in 2019 found that 58% of white evangelicals and 70% of black Protestants believe cohabitation is acceptable if a couple plans to marry. The young youngest Americans are far more liberal on cohabitation, uh, with less than 10% finding it morally problematic. The idea of waiting until marriage comes across as even more antiquated in other studies. The, the most recent National Survey of Family Growth, done by the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, uh, and, and completed in 2019, has found that 43% of evangelical Protestants ages 15 to 22 said they definitely or probably would cohabit with uh, with someone in the future. Only 24% said they definitely would not. Over two-thirds of those ages 29 to 49 had uh, cohabited at, at least once. And 53% of evangelical Protestants currently in their first marriage cohabited with each with each other prior to being legally wed. Evangelicals, especially those under 40, increasingly see cohabitation uh, as morally acceptable. Most young evangelicals have engaged in it or expect to. The coronavirus pandemic also seems to be increasing uh, cohabitation, uh, um, uh, according to the Population Research Institute, as more couples than ever are likely to delay marriage. Many are opting to move in together rather than being physically separated under the the, the force of COVID nineteen restrictions. There are no there's there's no reason to believe that these uh, pressures are not affecting evangelical singles. There there is some some reason for hope though. The cohabiting habitat. Um, habit is is less acute among those who are theologically conservative and attend church weekly. Even with shifting cultural attitudes, the studies show that evangelicals who attend church regularly or who regard their faith as very important to their daily lives are much less likely to plan on cohabiting or to actually do so. Church attendance and personal faith commitment make a huge difference. But even among evangelicals who believe that it is wrong, few can articulate why. 
when 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 he asked why young people in their generation choose to live together, the term convenience was used many times. But uh, finances actually is by far the most common rationale. And such pressures aren't limited to young people. Uh, many widowed and elderly people today want to be married, but are afraid that getting married would hurt their government benefits. They see living together as only uh, the only alternative to being alone. Um, what, what approach should churches take when uh, couples like this seek premarital counseling or want to, to book the sanctuary for their wedding ceremony? Uh, of, of many pastors interviewed, few were willing to proceed with premarital counseling and um, obviously officiation uh, of uh, cohabiting couples um, who did not separate prior to, to marriage. Many churches, while open to marrying non-church members, will not conduct weddings for cohabiting couples who, following counseling uh, and, and, and instruction, do not separate or cease sexual activity until they're wed. Now, Pastor Bill Henry said, quote, I present the idea of leave, cleave, one flesh as a guideline and, and, and God's best, he said. Um, that, that means move out if they're living together until marriage and stop sleeping together. And if they started to, uh, to, to do so, you know, go ahead and stop until their marriage. But not all pastors minister to couples and, and address cohabitation without requiring that they, they cease cohabiting. I mean, many see it as, as a way to end this, the sin or a way to build a relationship with the couple. Uh, in situations that call for it, some evangelical pastors have been uh, suggested offering a, a church wedding and vows, but foregoing a legal marriage certificate. In in the future, he says, I, I'm sh I'm certain many evangelical churches will begin seriously looking at church marriages and and wedding vows as solemnly binding as any, without any expectation of a state marriage license. Um, kind of an interesting thought, and and really when you get thinking about it you know, why is the government involved in it in the first place, right? Is it a government institution type thing, or is it really something that it belongs in the church? So again, one of those things that pastors struggle with. Pastors can also approach these dilemmas uh, proactively. First, con congregants uh, cannot take um, for granted that worshipers, young and old, know and understand biblical teaching on sex outside of wedlock. I mean, Christians often hold to myths that help justify uh, cohabitation, uh, such as the need for a couple to practice living together to be successful, right? Um, most pastors and other church leaders already encourage daily exercise of their Christian faith, you know, the reading of the word and the praying and that type of thing, and weekly church attendance. But many others are are negligent to follow up with church members who become sporadic in their involvement. And in, 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 in this kind of case, uh, as, as with every other area of sinful temptation, the, the basic disciplines of the Christian faith are necessary for growth. And, and in a time in which 
same-sex marriage and gender identity has become the dominant sexual, sexually um, explicit issues driving um, pro- professing believers. It, it might seem like this particular subject is something evangelical pastors could afford to downplay. However, our God is not only merciful and long-suffering and compassionate, but he is just he, he, he is just and holy. He's a just and holy God whose word is perfect. And we do not honor him by setting aside what we may view as lesser sins or for those experiencing gender confusion or same-sex attraction, ignoring certain sexual sins or temptations from the pulpit does not appear wise or kind. It appears hypocritical. And if we ignore one, we have no grounds to denounce the other. If we call one to holiness, we must call the other. Real compassion lies in the path of empathetic truthfulness, not sympathetic lies. I, I really like how, that, how he handed that. And lastly, we have the article about the former Mars Hill elders and um, Mark Driscoll is still unrepentant um, and, and unfit to pastor. This was from July 26th. It said more than 40 elders who served with Mark Driscoll during the final years of Mars Hill Church are publicly calling for him to step down from his current pa- uh, pastoral position and seek reconciliation with those that he hurt. They've come out with a statement uh, about it. <clears throat> and of course, you know, Driscoll founded the Trinity Church in Scottsdale in 2016, two years after he resigned from Mars Hill and at the conclusion of the investigation into his leadership. The leaders who signed on to the statement say that they felt a responsibility to clarify the charges against him as a way to warn current members of his church and continue to call the well-known preacher to the kind of repentance and restoration um, process that that he never was able to complete under Mars Hill. There were 41 signatories on this particular statement, um, and their their statement also included a a never before released document from October of 2014 that detailed how the church church's investigation conducted by the members of the elder board at Mars Hill. Uh, what what uh, what they deemed uh, uh, and found that uh, Driscoll had a real quick temper, uh, was very arrogant and domineering. Uh, the recommendation, um, the recommended restoration plan, uh, though involved returning him to to ministry uh, of Mars Hill, uh, was was not able to go through because he resigned. <laughs> right, instead of going through all that, he went and resigned instead. Um, and, and they said, you know, we hope and pray by the grace of God that Mark will submit himself to a prolonged season under the godly leadership and direction of a local church body and elder team. And really, this is a biblical path for restoration for those leaders that are involved with some sort of sin. Uh, and I, I pray that he, he chooses that path. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of of pastors that have gotten themselves in trouble, whether it be for moral failure or whatever the case may be, we see we see a lot of the type of thing where when that when it comes down and it and it comes out, 
um, of, of what they're into and the, and the things that they're doing, um, they, they, they show an arrogance and they do not want to take the path of restoration. And they, they think of themselves as, as much more, um, really that, that God needs them more than, than someone else in that position. And, and that's pride and, and pride is something that, that does come before uh, the fall. Uh, either way, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're not to get our eyes off what is really important. And that is Jesus Christ. Uh, we see, these are, these are men, these are, they're individuals. And, and when we hold them up too highly, or when we even hold ourselves up too highly, we get our eyes off of what is important. And that's Jesus Christ. And, and yes, there are church, church leaders that are going to fall. Uh, that's, that just happens. Um, every, everybody is imperfect. Um, and, and oftentimes they, they go down roads they shouldn't. Um, but what is important is that we learn from this and we keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. Now, there you have it. I mean, Christianity Today's top 10 articles for pastors in 2021. I found it to be an interesting one, and I hope you did too. You can always comment on our Facebook, Instagram, or MeWe pages, or just simply go to UncommonSensePodcast.com. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast is a production of Morganite Communications. 